know your eyes and ears are not deceiving you. There are, in fact, two episodes this week. I had some extra time to sneak in another recording for your cognitive pleasure. This is the Freed Thinker Podcast. Some people say that I threw my brain away, that I'm a logical and don't have much to say. Some people say that it's foolish to believe in what we cannot say, some word is saved. Well, I would like to thank you uh, for coming back and joining us here on the Freethinker Podcast, where we are going to be continuing our review of David McAfee's book, Disproving Christianity and Other Secular Writings, second edition, put out by Dangerous Little Books, I believe in 2011. Last week, we explored David's chapters dealing with cultural Christianity and Christianity in America and showed how his writing was plagued with all kinds of problems. We are going to continue to see that trend as we now dive into his chapter entitled Morality versus Worship. As always, if you have any questions or comments regarding what you hear, please feel free to contact me on my blog at www.logicaltheism.blogspot.com. Don't forget the hyphen, www.logical-theism.blogspot.com. You can email me at tylervella at gmail.com or find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Dot Vela. Well, with that said, let's jump into our continuing review of Disproving Christianity here on the Freed Thinker Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready to rumble! Morality versus Worship. My first comments for this chapter are thoroughly procedural ones. I take it to be obvious that a chapter which barely fills six small book pages, both size and length, cannot possibly do justice to a topic as immense as morality or worship, let alone both. How can this possibly be an, quote, open-minded analysis of the issue when it is not even seemingly long enough to get simple preliminaries on the table? Prior to writing this section of my review, I am already sure that it will end up being longer than McAfee's chapter itself. Furthermore, and somewhat alarmingly, what we will find out is that this chapter actually ends up to be nothing about morality or worship, let alone a possible contradiction between the two. The chapter is essentially more about the possibility of a just God sending morally good people to hell than it is about anything else. McAfee's summation of what the, quote, prerequisites to be saved from sin are, on page 21 and 22, steer extremely close to blatant works-based righteousness that is far from the orthodox or historic Christian position, a common mistake among many critics of Christianity. To summarize the Christian position as work-based is an error on par with saying that Republicans love big government bureaucracies and massive entitlement programs. What McAfee still seems to miss is that the Christian doctrine of salvation by sheer grace and his summations of the Christian religion and its answer to the chief problem of the human condition are just gross distortions. McAfee seems blissfully unaware of the various positions on salvation and sanctification that have arisen from within the Christian tradition and thus in turn falsely sees the Christian concept of morality as a simple placation of some animistic deity like we would find in Hinduism or the Greek pantheon. That is, if the gods ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Something we will never find knitted on God's apron. Furthermore, McAfee writes that, quote, those who have not heard of the teaching of Jesus will likewise be condemned, end quote, page 22 through 23. Or again, quote, if it is the case that non-believers are punished based solely for non-belief, and this is the purpose for early Christian missionaries to spread the gospel, then we can conclude that those individuals who haven't heard or cannot understand the teachings will likewise be damned, end quote, page 24. This kind of gloss is a manner of diversion by a half-truth. Is someone condemned because of their disbelief or lack of belief? Or is one condemned because of their actual judicial standing before a righteous and just God? 
While McAfee seems to think Christianity teaches the former, the Christian position has always been that of the latter. While repentance and faith is the means by which one receives salvation, though one can only receive something that is being offered to them, this does not mean that the rejection of the offer is what condemns the unrepentant sinner. That would be like saying that a criminal who has been offered parole and yet refuse, refuses it is a criminal because of their rejection of freedom rather than because of their original crime. The refusal simply maintains their present location. They are a criminal because they committed a transgression of a law that they had an obligation to keep and were pronounced guilty by the authority of a rightful judge. So too in Christian theology, we are guilty because of our sins against God and humanity. We are not condemned because we do not believe or refuse to repent, though this may increase the transgression. In fact, many theologians have even argued that we do not believe because we are condemned sinners, not vice versa. He digs this hole of inaccuracies even deeper when he says, quote, In order to be forgiven for any sins, you must accept that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. End quote, page 23. This is a gross misrepresentation for several reasons. Firstly, even if the content of belief that is required for salvation is that Jesus is God incarnate, it is not the act of believing that forgives our sins, but rather it was the substitutionary atoning death on the cross in our place. That is, regardless of the content of belief, the impetus for salvation has always been the cross, not the confession. This is actually quite elementary Christian theology, and one wonders how McAfee believes that he is equipped to disprove Christianity when he so clearly does not understand its most basic teachings. Secondly, it is not the case that the profession of faith is that Jesus is God incarnate, as complex as that theology even is. There, there have been numerous times and various places, most notably the early Church of the Apostles before the formalization of creeds, when believers did not necessarily or universally believe that Jesus was God incarnate, or did not mean what we mean by that now. One does not need to have all their theological I's dotted and T's crossed in order to be saved. It is because it is quite possibly the case that many people are saved in spite of what they believe. This again is due to the fact <clears throat> this is due to the fact that it is not our profession of Jesus Christ as God or any doctrinal or creedal con con consent that saves us. It is merely the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus that redeems us. Whether or not we accept that salvation is another question footnote. Here I also recognize the extremely complex and sadly often fiery debate between Christians and on election, reprobation, predetermination, and prescient grace, as well as numerous other doctrines. The ultimate cause of why or how someone comes to believe is not my concern on this point. McAfee then moves on to the meat of the chapter, again, which has nothing at all to do with the chapter title, and makes several massive assumptions when he says, quote, Would a just God send a morally good individual to hell for never having heard of him? And for that matter, would a just God expel a morally good individual to hell who has heard of Jesus but simply finds no evidentiary reason to believe? End quote. Page 23. This makes one false assumption, one uncharitable gloss, and one presumptive oversimplification. The first of these will actually take much of the length of the review on this chapter and may in fact exceed the length of McAfee's chapter itself. As I said, barely six pages on such a dense issue as morality seems recklessly brief. The false assumption is that people are in fact morally good, or whatever that even means under McAfee's naturalism, which we will have to piece together shortly. What McAfee tiptoes around, possibly wisely, to the utter failure of even atheistic scholars to handle this topic in their proper writings, but which I will not let slide here, is the assumption of moral realism littered throughout the book. Let us begin by assuming that McAfee is correct in his own statement later in the book that, quote, as humanity evolves, our morals and principles evolve with us, end quote, page 108 which is surely the root of his moral philosophy throughout the book. 
what does this lead to? Well, logically, this leads to a kind of moral relativism relative to each culture as it evolves in the same way that, according to some atheistic philosophers and those who adore mimetics, religion itself has evolved. What this yields, then, is a version of evolutionary moral relativism. From this, we will examine several issues that this may raise in order to show that even McAfee's rejection of a god based on morality is itself a kind of proof for the very god that McAfee desires to disprove. Let us also, as our prime moral case, assume with McAfee that morals are relative and thus rape is only, quote, wrong according to the culture in which we live and then see where that logically leads us. Footnote. For in order to say that rape, the action itself, is wrong, and not just wrong because culture has said it's wrong, McAfee must posit a transcendental moral standard which he himself has asserted does not and indeed cannot exist. While many attempts have been made to liberate atheism from the chilling grips of Nietzschean nihilism, all of them have reduced down to social conventions that arose in our evolutionary past to either help our species survive or to maintain social order. They are simply illusory conventions that we use to maintain the fabric of a functioning society, but in no way are descriptions of any real or objective moral values or duties. I see no way, then, that an atheist can maintain that rape is any more immoral than one country deciding that everyone should drive on the left-hand side of the street instead of on the right in order to protect its citizens. To start, I could ask, why am I obliged to follow the morals of my culture? They are not actually moral, immoral. They are merely a consensus of preference among the majority group to keep the wheels of, of social contract rolling. So the action, rape, is not actually immoral as an action. It is only seemingly immoral in the eyes of the beholder because if we allowed it, it would be possibly detrimental to society. Morals now become something subjective like aesthetics. Rape is not in and of itself immoral, it's just socially taboo. We do not prefer it, or else it is just not practical or expedient to a flourishing society, whatever that would even mean. Morals become something like preference, not obligation. I prefer chocolate ice cream over strawberry, which is a real preference, yet I'm not obligated to eat chocolate ice cream, and I in no way inspect others to eat chocolate ice cream due to the fact that it is my own subjective preference. In America, we drive on the right-hand side of the road for the pragmatic reason that it keeps people safe and leads to more human flourishing. However, we do not think that England and countries like it are wicked or immoral for deciding as a society to drive on the left-hand side of the road. Yet when it comes to morals, we recognize a different kind of obligation than my obligation to driving on the proper side of the road depending on the country I'm in. I know that I'm obligated not to rape, not just because I or we do not prefer it, but also because it is a wrong action in and of itself independent of my opinions about it. I expect that all people during all times really ought not to rape. This is not just because I do not like it, but because the act is in and of itself evil. Next, we can see another problem with McAfee's moral theory by asking why the subculture of a majority culture is obligated to obey the moral code of the majority culture, i.e., if it is culturally, socially relative, whose culture is it relative to? We can think of the moral outrage of the homosexual community in California, even though the majority of California opposed gay marriage and voted for Proposition 8, which banned gay marriage starting in 2008. So is banning gay marriage moral because the majority of people in the state think it is not beneficial to a flourishing society to allow it? Or is it actually immoral and thus should be fought for as a right, as McAfee seems to think. His own moral outrage about the very social consensus that he uses to base his moral theory on is very telling. What is more, is it possibly immoral in California because the majority of its citizens were against it, 
but somehow moral in Hawaii, where the majority of, of its citizens favored it. Well, what about the subculture of a subculture? And so on. What we end up with at bottom of any and all socially relative moral systems is a kind of every man for himself personally subjective morality. However, if that is the case, then why is Jeffrey Dahmer obligated to not kill and eat his neighbor? Why shouldn't Hitler have killed six million Jews if it was what he thought was right and had the will to, of power to do so? And is it simply because it didn't lead to the flourishing of society, whatever that means? Should we think that it should be determined by the will of the people and government that are not built around Western modern liberal democracies? Well, what if the society was a dictatorship like that of Hitler and the Nazis? And what if the society that Hitler wanted to flourish was one where Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, and the mentally challenged were not part of? Who has the right to say which society or governmental organization gets its way? If one holds to subjective morality, then one cannot logically say that Hitler was objectively wrong or evil, only that one does not prefer it either personally or as a social group, even though they hate it and think it is despicable. But they cannot say that Hitler actually did anything immoral or wicked or evil. Most Americans do not like ethnocentrism, but if subjective morality is true, then we violate our own subjective moral distaste for it by imposing our own subjective preferences on others in an act of moral imperialism. What else would the imposition of a Western sense of, quote, human rights upon cultures that do not share that view but aggressive imperialism. McAfee previously decried Manifest Destiny, but it seems that if he is right about the basis for morality that he is committing something just as or even more heinous, even though no one moral system would be more right than another because they are all illusory. McAfee wants to invade the moral landscape of others, plant his flag, and claim it in the name of his Western liberal subjective moral conventions. What is more, how does McAfee hope to get away with the contradiction between supposed culturally evolved morals on the one hand and his moral indignation about the actions of people living 2,000 or more years ago in a wholly other culture with different culturally evolved morals on the other? If morality is merely an expression of the social contracts of the time, then on what basis does McAfee expect us to look at ancient Israel and their activities described in the Bible and call them actually evil or wrong? He has no more right to do that than we do for saying the British are wicked for driving on the left-hand side of the road or for having an affinity for woefully under-seasoned food. If McAfee is right about the basis for morality or the illusion of it, then he cannot sufficiently ground any objection to the moral behavior of modern Christians, surely of subculture that he is not a part of, let alone ancient Israel. What is good for the goose is good for the gander. Next, we can ask if we, as a species or a culture, have made any real moral progress. Is America more moral now than during the practice of African slavery, for example? before women could vote, before African Americans could vote. If Prop 8 stays overturned, is that moral progress, or did a minority preference illegitimately win out contrary to the culture's moral majority? What sense could the phrase moral progress even mean if morality is just a subjective or societal illusion? No moral change would or even could be morally better than what preceded it. It would just be morally different, or preferred by more people, or, as often is the case, preferred by the cultural thought-making elites. How very bourgeoisie McAfee suddenly appears. America, post the emancipation of the African slaves, is not more moral than America pre-emancipation. The social contract and view of what a flourishing society was is was not morally better, just different. More people preferred it. 
Sure, it might be a numerically more equal, but for someone to say that it is more equal, that more equality is morally better, would either be as illusory as all moral statements, or else it would presuppose that there is something that is objectively morally better, which would itself undermine McAfee's position. Next, I can point out that if morals are subjective, then we could never really be immoral. What is the basis for saying that? Well, let us assume that I subjectively do not prefer lying, but then I lie. Tisk tisk. However, did I violate my own moral code? Well, in a fashion, but not really. Why? It is because I set up the rules to my own game. If my moral code is only code that is true for me, and if I am not judged by an exterior, universal, or objective moral code, then it is like me making up a card game where I make up the rules as I go. Yet, why would I feel guilty when I break my own rules? That would just be silly. It's like saying, I will not like, I, I will not like to eat chocolate ice cream then going through some emotional moral crisis because I let a spoonful slide while on vacation. Or worse than that, demanding that others feel guilty for liking chocolate ice cream when I do not. Morals are not personal resolutions that are self-imposed, but real obligations that are imposed upon us from a moral lawgiver exterior to ourselves as individuals and as a species and society at large. We actually know that the subjectivist view of morality is wrong when we see kings or dictators trying to live above the law of which they are the arbiter of. In monarchies and dictatorships, the ruler literally is the basis of law. Their will is sovereign. But if there is no morally obligatory standard beyond their sovereign will, then they can be as immoral as they choose because what is the most that their citizens can say? We collectively don't prefer that? Moreover, if McAfee and the naturals are correct, then we can wind up in blatantly paradoxical situations. Think of the cannibal culture who thinks it is right to kill and eat someone despite the fervent protestation of the victim who is to be their lunch. In that case, it would be a near-moral imperative for the majority tribe to cannibalize the one-man sense that would lead to numerous fat and happy tribesmen, and the victim would no longer be around to even feel or object any longer. Or we could think of the theoretical pre-modern rapist culture whose women all refuse to have sex with the men. Regardless of how we in modern Western America may feel about rape, in that culture the men, if the society is to survive, must all rape the women. Is the ongoing mass rape of an entire tribe of women really morally obligatory even though the women protest as do possibly the men, but who do it in order to survive? Is the moral value of such an action determined by what leads to the flourishing of the society? Again, whatever that means. Now, to be fair, a common objection posed to moral objectivity is that of the paradoxes of apparent moral dilemmas. Moral dilemmas are hypothetical situations where no clear good outcome seems possible. A common example would be that of the concentration camp inmate. In this paradox, imagine that you are an inmate in a concentration camp and a sadistic guard is about to hang your son who tried to escape and wants you to pull the chair from underneath him. He says that if you do not comply, he will not only kill your son, but some other innocent inmate as well. You have no doubt that he means what he says. So, what should you do? There's no morally good option. No matter what choice you make, you will have blood on your hands. Another common example is that of the sadistic bomber. In this case, you are a police officer who has captured a notorious bomber. However, upon his capture, you discover that he has placed several bombs in highly populated areas. The problem is that you do not know their locations and he will not freely confess their locations. Do you torture the bomber in order to save the lives of countless innocent civilians? One last example is the famous train dilemma. 
in this moral dilemma, you happen upon a stretch of train tracks on which your only son is tied to. A speeding train is barreling down the tracks, and unless you pull the lever next to you that will switch the tracks, your son will certainly die. However, if you pull the lever, then the train will derail, killing dozens of passengers on board. Do you pull the lever? However, now we can ask if these dilemmas are really an objection to objective moral values and duties. I do not think so, and we can see this by asking, why are they dilemmas? It is not because no moral obligation exists, but rather because we recognize two objective moral duties exist. Think of another dilemma of the crying baby in the attic. In this dilemma, there are several Jewish families hiding in a German attic trying to evade the Nazi SS patrol. In this attic, there is a crying baby that is inconsolable and who might reveal, reveal the family's location if it is not silenced. Should the families smother the baby and thus save the majority of the people in the attic, or should they let the baby cry and almost certainly lead to the capture and likely death of the whole group? Again, the problem is not that there is no objective moral values and duties. The problem is that we recognize two extremely important moral duties and cannot choose one without violating the other. However, if morality is just social convention, then these moral questions are answered by subjective preferences and we should have no more moral angst about choosing the life of one or the lives of the many than we do when we're at the grocery store aisle choosing chocolate or strawberry ice cream. Sure, we might really like both flavors, but we'll just choose which one seems better to us at the time. As if we have not shown enough problems with McAfee's position, we could also point out that in the end, we lose the ability to impose any real justice. The phrase legislating morality becomes a totally vacuous and nonsensical term. Why do we ban murder, perjury, rape, theft? Why do we outlaw them if there is no objective moral code? Is it just because it makes for a more functional society? This again begs the question of what kind of society we want or what kind of society actually is functional, whatever that might mean. Hitler, Stalin, Castro, Hoxha, Mao, and others could have said that their vision of society was of a certain kind that would almost demand the brutal treatment of hundreds of millions of people in order to achieve it. In fact, this is often the very reason they did give. It was for the, quote, greater good, end quote. Not only that, but we also lose any concept of civil or human rights. Human rights is only possible on the basis that it is, as the term says they are, rights of all humans, regardless of race, ethnicity, politics, creed, culture, or time. So think of our moral outrage and objection to human rights violations worldwide. We say that the genocidal actions against the Tutsis in Rwanda at the hands of the Hutus was an absolute violation against the Tutsis not because of some socially evolved factor in Rwanda, but because of what human persons objectively are, real and inalienable rights-bearing creatures with a tr intrinsic value regardless of how any culture, society, or government wants to view them. It is because of this that the Holocaust was a massive violation of human rights because the Jews are rights-bearing persons who have a fundamental right to life. We do not look at lions and call it murder when they eat the gazelles. We call it killing. We do not call it ageism or prejudice when they go for the sick and the old. We call it predatory instinct. We do not call it theft when one goal takes a fish from another, the mouth of another goal. We call it survival, and on and on and on. Why? Because these animals are not rights-bearing creatures. We may feel sad or pity when we anthropomorphically project humanity upon them, think of the term, the humane treatment of animals, 
but we do not call the police and report abuse or a crime when the shark eats the seal or even when the praying mantis eats the head of her mate within the same species. Yet if we are just another branch on, the, on an evolutionary tree without the interceding special act of God that casts us in his image, then what gives humans certain, quote, inalienable rights, but not other species? If you say, quote, because we have evolved the mental capacity to think so, end quote, or something of that nature, then you're merely pointing out why we think we have these rights, but implicitly denying that we actually do possess these rights. It would be like if I believed I was king of America. Well, no matter how sincerely I believed it, it just would not be so. Just because we may have evolved to think that we have real rights does not mean that we actually have real inalienable rights. There goes all substantive moral indignation about murder, rape, slavery, eugenics, medical experimentation, capital punishment, cruel and unusual punishment, genocide, concentration camps, racial profiling, privacy laws, etc., or any meaningful moral exhortation to honesty, bravery, love, equal rights of the gay community, women, and minorities, etc. This illusory moral outcome of naturalism is actually quite ironic since many anti-theists, McAfee included, assert that Christians believe in God simply as wish fulfillment for a life after death. The irony is that here they make morals nothing but illusory wishes. We wish people were good so we'll make up fictional moral obligations. And that is the extreme irony of all of this. Atheistic morality expressly admits that morality is not objective or real, and yet they act as if it is. What is the larger act of wish fulfillment? The person who mistakenly believes that something is true, but is in the, in the end turns out to be wrong, or the person who knows and admits that it is wrong, but chooses to act as if it is real and true anyway. The former might be wrong, but the latter is just self-deluded and admittedly so. This is one of the reasons I take it with a grain of salt when anti-theists try to say that Christians are deluded for believing that God exists. Even if we're wrong, which I do not think we are, at least we believe what we think is true with sincere conviction. We do not choose to believe what we know is false. We believe it is really and actually objectively true. Antitheists will often adamantly deny that they are people of faith and use the old Mark Twain quote about faith in order to mock religious belief. Twain said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Yet in this case, does Twain's, who, in this case, who does Twain's quote apply to more? Surely it is the naturalist who chooses to act as if morals are real and objective even though they know that it ain't so. What's more, if subjective morality was true, we would not be able to make meaningful moral comparisons. Mother Teresa's charity to the poor was her moral preference in the same way that Hitler's killing of six million Jews was his moral preference in order to promote a pure race. If morality is not objective, then we cannot say that one is more moral than another because not only is there no transcendent standard by which to measure them, but also because we cannot impose our subjective morality upon others without admitting that it is just sheer imperialistic will to power. Something is only more or less moral if there is a terminus, a standard by which both can be measured and compared. C.S. Lewis gave the now famous example of a train approaching a station. A train is only nearer or farther than another train from the station if there is actually a station that is, well, stationary. In the intent of full disclosure, the common objection to what has been said thus far is often an appeal to a kind of golden rule or an appeal to moral authority of the culture. Yet this merely tries to fix the wind in the air, so to speak, what Daniel Dennett would call a skyhook. For what does it even mean to say that morals are real because they are relative to culture? So some people will say, quote, well, it is immoral to rape because it harms another person, end quote, a kind of it's nice to be nice brand of ethics. To this we must then ask if it is 
actually wrong to harm another person for all people and all places and all times, or if that is subjective also. It just moves the goalpost back 10 feet. It is immoral to rape because it harms another person, and harming another person is wrong. Okay, but is it actually immoral to hurt someone? Am I obligated to not harm others? If it is obligatory, then morals are not subjective, and we then need to provide a basis for the new moral, thou shalt not harm others, that is being used to base our other relative moral codes. In order for that criticism to even make sense, it is actually must presuppose that certain things really are objectively moral, namely, that it is actually immoral to hurt another person. The problem is that if that is true, then the naturalistic position is false. It basically must presuppose that morals are objective in order to say that morals are not objective. But if it is subjectively immoral to hurt someone, then it is not an objective basis for other morals and it turns out that we are not obligated to follow it. Thus we could then ask, why shouldn't I harm another person? to which it is often responded, because it's wrong, thus completing a viciously circular argument. If McAfee and the other anti-theists are right, then morality turns out to be subjective because there are objective morals that make other morals subjective. Oh, what a difference 360 degrees makes. If they still wish to continue defending the, de defending the dead horse, they might say that we obey the social morals because otherwise the society will take action against us. That is, we act morally because otherwise the larger social construct will mete out negative consequences, be it poor reputation, financial loss, or incarceration. However, if someone like Jeffrey Dahmer did not care what society thought and was not worried about prison, then was he not actually more free by kicking off the imaginary shackles of society? And are we the ones letting ourselves be blindly caged up in a self-imposed prison of illusory rules meant to keep us all in conformity, lemmings stepping to the same whispering beat? The problem, as we just saw, is that the arguments given to support subjectively evolved morals often assume the very objective morals that they are seeking to deny. The objections to the kind of evolved morals thesis that McAfee is proposing, or more accurately presupposing in order to object to Christianity, could literally go on much longer. This is actually only a short list of the dilemmas that could be launched against McAfee's position. I only stop here because I think we have seen that if morals are not an objective standard exterior to all humanity, and to which we are obliged to uphold, then morals then morals are only real in the sense that my preference for chocolate ice cream is real. As I said, this was only a brief list of the massive problems with naturalistic subjective concepts of morality, which all ultimately lead to moral nihilism and brutish will to power brands of moral imperialism. It turns out that McAfee's position leads to the conclusion that morals simply are not obligatory, but preferential and utterly illusory. Yet if this is the case, from whence does McAfee's moral indignation expressed throughout the entire book come from? And the question goes further. Why would we want to object to objective morals? In fact, it seems that no one rejects objective morals unless they are acutely aware that they are engaging with a position that uses morals to prove, or at least to infer, the existence of God. I doubt that if McAfee were mugged that he would say to the mugger, well, I don't prefer what you are doing. He would say, if he could muster the courage to do so, stop, it's wrong. Or, if we see a rapist get out of jail too early or get acquitted in the first place, we know a real travesty of justice has actually occurred. This man was wicked and his acts deserve punishment no matter what culture or time he is from. The Nazi elites who escaped judgment at Nuremberg really do deserve justice. It is only from the ivory tower and low-cost discussions where nothing is at stake that skeptics feel free uh, and brave enough to loft their skeptical epithets that, quote, morals aren't objective, end quote. 
Try telling a rape victim, I'm sorry you feel violated, but that's all it is, a subjective feeling. The rape wasn't actually wrong. You just didn't prefer it, but the guy sure did. Don't be so judgmental. We know how absurd that is because we absolutely know that rape, the act itself, not just some person's or group's subjective perception of it, is actually, objectively, absolutely, really wrong for all people at all times in all places no matter what Roos or McAfee would say. What many anti-theistic objections also show is that the anti-theists are unaware of the difference between moral codes, moral duties, moral epistemology, and moral ontology. That is, the difference between saying that there exists real and objective moral values, moral ontology, how we come to know what those moral values are, moral epistemology, what our duty would be with respect to those values, moral duties, and what would constitute the content of such a moral code, moral codes or applied ethics. Most often, people will point to the differing moral codes of cultures and peoples, even between different Christians, and say, see, morals are relative. By performing such a maneuver, they have actually sidestepped the issue. The problem with such naturalistic views of morality is that they skip past what morality is and how we can be morally obligated to act and zoom in on the specified difference in the moral content. It would be like saying that because we evolve the ability to perceive the natural world, that what we perceive is the product of evolution of our species. Yet that would just be silly. So why do we assume that even if our moral sense evolved with our species, that the morals perceived through that sense are simply a byproduct of that evolution? In addition to this, such critics are often just flat out wrong. While the content may differ in application, it rarely differs in what the basic moral actually is. For example, think of the moral, we ought to honor the dead. Well, in one culture, they might keep this moral by burning the body on a pyre, others by burying it, others by cooking and consuming it, which may be a bore to us, but all are trying to apply the ethic of we ought to honor the dead. In fact, C.S. Lewis points out that if one were to actually study the moral codes of all cultures and people and places, we would find universal consent we would find the universal consent to honesty, love, almsgiving, courage, solidarity, and the same denouncement of lying, hate, murder, adultery, etc. They may differ on where to draw the line or how to express it, but we very rarely find one culture that says murder is great. What we do find is that they vary on where the, to draw the line between justified killing and murder. Yet again, why should we assume that just because they, they differ, they're equally valid? Is it not possible that some are just flat out wrong in the same way that many cultures are wrong on their other descriptions of reality? Is it not possible that the Nazis were wrong in saying that killing the Jews was a justified killings and that the Allies were right in saying that it was mass murder? Is that not analogous to the fact that some cultures have been wrong in saying that the earth was a disk when in fact we know it was a globe? This then points us to the fact that there is a moral standard and the challenge to try and get as and the challenge is to try to get as close as possible to that objective standard. What this also shows us is that a possible basis for such moral codes cannot be found in any naturalistic scheme or culture. In fact, the only moral theories that have been able to base our, moral, our real moral faculties are those of various theistic worldviews that base morality within the immutable nature of God himself. Why is rape in and of itself always wrong? Because it will always, always be a violation of the image of God in which humans are created and is an act of intentional autonomous defiance against the immutable nature of God on which the image is grounded. To this concept, many skeptics will object that humans were obviously capable of moral evaluations long before the composition of the Bible, and that many people can be moral without any reference or belief in God or the Bible. 
What this objection obviously misses, however, as stated previously, is that the Christian position is not that morality is based on the Bible, though they may argue that the best summation of much of the content of an adequately accurate moral code is found therein, or on a personal belief in God or the Bible, but rather they are rooted and grounded in the immutable nature of God and implanted in every human, since every human is created imago Dei, regardless of one's subjective worldview. It is no surprise to the Christian when an atheist is ethical. They are simply acting in accordance with the moral law implanted within them because they are image bearers. What should surprise us, if the anti-theists are correct, is that humans are moral at all. We are surprised when an ape shows generosity or sympathy because we do not generally, generally consider animals to be moral creatures. Yet if humans are just a more highly evolved primate, then why should we expect that humans have real moral obligations at all? So after all of that, I asked McAfee, is rape actually wrong? Or do we just not prefer it as a society? The answer to those questions would be most telling. This treatment of morality, and even this was quite brief and elementary in comparison to the length that a full, state, full treatment of morality could have been, should be enough to show that McAfee was wholly unaware or possibly just uninterested in actually evaluating the real Christian position or of subjecting his own worldview to scrutiny rather than just presuming it to be wholesale true. He seems to think that treating it as if the case has been closed and no defense could be made to the contrary is the most rational position to maintain. Yet he commits a common error for his book, only engaging with the most vapid, shallow, and often straw man version of his opponent's positions, while assuming the absolute, unassailable truth of his own position. This is simply not how real scholarship is done. Now, with that said, we can finally move on to the uncharitable gloss. To summarize the brute force of the gloss, we can ask the question, would a just God really fill in the blank? As noted above, we can, see, we can sense the real moral indignation oozing from this question. But this is a point in favor of God, since, as we have seen above, morality is only possible as a derivative of the immutable, holy, and righteous nature of God. And since no human, save the incarnate Christ, has been able to keep conformity and obedience to the universal moral law implanted in us, or the revealed will of God given in scriptures, and thus no human is righteous, then yes, a just God could and would execute justice on all crimes against the very nature of God. For a longer treatment on the actual noetic effects of sin and grace, one can find my article uh, that I have on it at scribd.com. It's entitled, The Directed Study of the Noetic Effects and Effects of Sin and Grace. This is easy enough to understand, actually. We all like justice. In fact, the demands of justice are actually a wedge anti-theists frequently attempt to use against God elsewhere and are at the root of even this objection by McAfee. The question could be restated as, quote, is it actually just for God to condemn unrighteous individuals? We have ingrained in our moral nature a desire for justice to be done. We groan when a rapist is set free or a long-hunted mass murderer dies peacefully in their sleep before being captured. We want, no, we demand justice to be done, except when it comes to God and our own eternal destinies. We find a multitude of ways to escape it, one of which is the objection here. To avoid justice, we downplay the nature and severity of sin, or we deny that sin even exists by denying the moral law exists, even if we explicitly assert it elsewhere. We do not like that God executes retributive justice, and so to avoid the gavel hammering for us, we deny that it hammers at all. McAfee then continues by saying, This is because, according to Christian dogma, it is impossible to be moral without Jesus Christ. I disagree with this on a fundamental level. End quote. Page 23. This comment actually reveals more about McAfee's misunderstanding of theism in general, and Christian theism in particular, 
and what theologians and apologists have long argued. The reason for this is that most Christian theologians and apologists would stand with McAfee and disagree with that position on a fundamental level as well. There is, in quote, Christian dogma, again, as if it is monolithic, a distinction between moral behavior and righteousness. Just because we are sinful people who stand under the right judgment of a just God does not mean that we cannot act in accordance with objective morality. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, quote, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. End quote. Matthew 5, 45b-47. Notice that while the distinction is made between the evil and the good, the just and the unjust, Jesus also shows that the tax collectors and Gentiles are fully capable of genuinely loving people. They are not wicked through and through. In fact, Christian theology teaches that even Christians are simul justus et peccator, that is, simultaneously justified and sinful. While we have re been redeemed by Christ and stand in a justified position before God in Christ, it does not mean that we are not still fallen and sinful. Paul describes this inner struggle in Romans, starting in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now. If I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that, with, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I, I, I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Romans 7, 14-25 This is not the holier-than-thou kind of conception of Christianity that so many people have. Paul, sure, Paul, surely a pillar of the Christian faith, if there ever was one, is telling us that even though his intention is to keep the perfect law of God, he is conflicted. His sinful nature, even after seeing the resurrected Jesus, even after ministering for decades and suffering persecution and trials for being a Christian, even as an apostle, recognizes that he has no ability in himself to be righteous before God. His natural urges and desires continue to pull at him to sin, and he seems to admit to succumbing to it more than he would like. Yet, would we think that Paul is saying that he is either completely moral or completely immoral? Not at all. This failure by McAfee and others to rightly understand the distinction between righteousness and justification with moral action or goodness lies at the root of many of his misconceptions. We humans, Christian or not, are a mixed bag when it comes to our moral activity. The difference between the two is the difference between an exonerated criminal and a condemned one. Both are criminals. One has just been set free in the eyes of the law. Finally, the presumptive oversimplification is that all non-believers reject God simply because of the lack of evidence. We in fact know that belief is more about the will and the core worldview of a person than on evidence, and yes, I fully know what this means for the Christian perspective, but I think this means all worldviews are on a level playing field, at least to begin with. We know smokers can intellectually know that smoking definitively causes lung cancer and yet still smoke. 
did they have no evidence? No. They are either too selfish, too self-deluded, may not trust the evidence, or may just not care, or may be too addicted, all of which lead to disbelief in practice. Because of our own worldview and psychological constitution, we often filter evidence and read it with skewed evaluations. This occurs for all of us, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa. But to reduce atheism to a bland intellectual exercise, free of presuppositions and wholly objective when it comes to their disbelief in God, seems altogether too simplistic to the universal realities of belief-forming faculties within the human mind. Just as a side note from the book review, I do have an article, for those of you who remember, on my blog dealing with if atheism is actually just a lack of belief or is a belief system itself, in which I argue that atheism is not properly understood, simply a lack of belief. Back to the book review. Occasionally, we get a few honest comments from atheists about the emotional content of their disbelief, though less with the advent of the evangelical new atheism and its kissing cousin, anti-theistic fundamentalism. William Erse Henley was known principally for his skeptical poem, Invictus. As a youngster, Henley contracted tuberculosis and had to have one foot amputated. He suffered much across the years and became quite bitter yet defiant. His disbelief, however, was emotional, not intellectual. He wrote, in the fell clutch of circumstance I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance my head is bloody, but unbowed. The late Isaac Asimov once wrote, quote, Emotionally, I am an atheist. I don't have the evidence to prove that God doesn't exist, but I so strongly suspect that he doesn't that I don't want to waste my time, end quote. In one of his books, Aldous Huxley acknowledged that he had reasons for, quote, not wanting the world to have meaning, end quote. He contended that the, quote, philosophy of the meaningless, end quote, was liberating. He confessed that the morality of Theseum interfered, quote, with our sexual freedom, end quote. So to free his sexual desires, he knew he must first become free of God. These comments help to reveal that disbelief is no more exclusively intellectual than belief is. A common question that is often asked uh, reveals a lack of knowledge about how Christianity specifically answers the question of how a holy, just, and yet omnibenevolent God can coincide with condemnation. The question is, how far would a merciful Christian God go in punishing non-believers? Well, According to the Bible, the Christian God would go as far as Calvary. A merciful God would go so far as to take the very place and punishment of the sinners. The cross, the central concept in Christianity's answer to the question of sin and evil, is utterly lacking in McAfee's discourse on the issue. It is extremely strange that he would omit Christianity's central answer to these issues for millennia when the subject of his book is the subject of Christianity. He is either so uninformed on what Christianity is that he does not know how Christianity has historically addressed these issues, or willfully wants to keep them hidden from his readers. He then asserts that the Bible makes no mention of children in the afterlife, which is actually downright wrong and reels not only a lack of biblical knowledge but also a lack of research into biblical passages like 2 Samuel 12:23 or the Calvinistic doctrine of election. Following this, he says that, quote, "It is easy to conclude that logically children who die when they are too young to know Christ's words may not have a place in eternal communion with God." End quote, page 24. Sure, it may be easy, but it's not correct. In fact, that it is easy to say what he has should have tipped him off to the fact that a religion that has been around and captured the hearts of more than its fair share of brilliant minds might just have something more to say about this than he is letting on. What he seems to miss is that it is just as easy to say that children, or in other contexts people with mental defects, are elected by God and granted salvation in the same way that believers are prior to being regenerated to faith. 
A simple understanding of the Ordo Salutis, or Order of Salvation, would reveal that belief and faith are not what actually achieve salvation, but are simply the means by which salvation is accepted by a regenerate and fully developed mind. This presumes the ability of the person to comprehend and believe. What is left unanswered by McAfee is why must this be a necessary condition for people without such a cognitive ability? The Bible is nearly silent on the subject of salvation of people without such a cognitive, without such a condition for people. Let me back up. What is left unanswered by McAfee is why must this be a necessary condition for people without such a cognitive ability? The Bible is nearly silent on the subject of the salvation of people without such a cognitive ability. Although I think that Romans 2 makes a pretty strong case that people are only judged according to the information that they are capable of perceiving and as such persons with mental defects to the degree that they cannot reasonably be expected to understand the basic message of the gospel could easily be saved by the simple electing and sovereign grace of God. McAfee then states that the Christian conception of salvation due to faith, which is quite different from the Orthodox Christian perspective on salvation by grace accepted by faith, leads to the system where, quote, a murderer can be forgiven and sent to heaven, whereas a loving and caring skeptic would be cast into damnation, page 19. This comment of extreme moralism makes several massive oversights. To begin with, as stated before, is that depicting people as pure innocence regardless of their sins before a holy God is a kind of straw man where assumptions are injected or facts are removed in order to posit the opponent's position as something weaker than it actually is. In this case, McAfee injects the assumption that people, regardless of their standing with God, are morally pure and innocent of any deed worthy of God's judgment and thus remove the facts of the holy and just nature of a righteous God and our failure to maintain our duty to obey him and act in accordance with righteousness. Beyond this, McAfee also seems to miss that the skeptic and the unbeliever can actually, just as easily as the murderer, be forgiven. It is not as if skepticism is the unforgivable sin that no matter how much the unbeliever bangs on the gates of heaven wanting to get in, he will be told that there's no room for him in the pearly gates in. The difference between the forgiven murderer and the condemned skeptic is not some inverse view of the severity of their sin. Rather, the difference is that one repented and one did not. One has humbly accepted God, the other still pridefully rejects God. Why does the murderer who repents and accepts Jesus go to heaven and the unrepentant skeptic go to hell? It is not because of unbelief or disbelief. It is, it is a more grievous sin, but it is precisely because one repents and one is unrepentant. This is not a question of comparable moral standing, but of forensic justification. One is declared innocent and the other remains guilty. Or, as put before, one criminal accepts the offered freedom, one does not. One chooses to accept his freedom and leave his cell, the other refuses to exit the open door that would let him out because he denies that he is in a cell to begin with. We can see examples of this in our everyday relationships. Imagine two couples. In both couples, the men have broken the trust of the women. For this, we must imagine that the women are willing to offer forgiveness regardless of the severity of the transgression because of their great love, no matter how true to life this may be. In the first case, the man had cheated, but was truly repentant and genuinely asked for the forgiveness that his wife was offering, and in response to that forgiveness, redefined his priorities and attitudes and aspired to live as a faithful husband from there on out. Their marriage was restored. In the other couple, the other husband merely lied to his wife about what he did with some money that they had tucked away. Presumably, this is not as bad as cheating. The husband, however, was prideful, unremorseful, and actually totally determined to not only not repent, but even to deny that he had done anything wrong. Their marriage remains broken. How can it be healed if one of the participants refuses to even admit there is a problem? In the first case, the husband now stands forgiven and the relationship can be restored. In the second place, the husband is not and the relationship will only become more estranged, estranged and the couple more estranged. 
While the severity of each of their sins is obviously disproportionate, it is actually their attitudes and ability to take responsibility for their actions and accept the grace being offered to them that determines the outcome. So the situation created by the Christian conception is one where both the murderer and the skeptic are guilty of sin and deserving of God's righteous judgment, and both are equally able to be saved. It is precisely because the skeptic is an unrepentant sinner who refuses to accept their sin and therefore cannot accept God's forgiveness for that sin, which distinguishes between the two of them. The real tragedy in this chapter, however, is the non-sequitur that it concludes it. The entire chapter had been focused on the perceived conflict between a loving God and a God who damns, quote, innocent people to hell. But at the end, McAfee surprisingly states, quote, Not only do I believe that it is possible to maintain moral standards without the crutch of religion, but I would argue that it is the only way to achieve true goodness. Free from the constraints of organized religion, a human being is able to express true decency from oneself, as opposed to attempting to appease whatever higher power he or she may believe in. By separating worship and morality, we can act in accordance with our own human morals and be able to be less selfish in our motivations for kindness and moral behaviors. End quote, page 25 through 26. What is so strange about this is that no basis has been given in the preceding context for the viable basis for moral realism, moral obligation, or transferable moral content from a non-theistic worldview. In fact, as we have seen in this book, McAfee has consistently argued against objective moral values and duties. So this statement is completely drawn from a hat. It hangs from Dennett's sky hook in the clouds. It literally is incoherent on McAfee's own worldview. Not only that, but whereas McAfee argues elsewhere in the book, quote, only more, our morals and principles evolve from us, end quote, page 78, which I addressed above, in this context, he seems to assume that there is such a thing as moral behaviors, but without defining or basing such concepts. They are simple and ungrounded assumptions actually borrowed from the Christian worldview in which they are able to be based as we saw above. As the Christian theologian Cornelius Van Til used to say, McAfee is attempting to sit on God's lap in order to slap God's face. Well, that just about does it for us today. I want to sincerely thank you for again uh, joining us here at the Freed Thinker Podcast. And remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can leave them on my blog at www.logicaltheism.blogspot.com. Don't forget the hyphen, www.logical-theism.blogspot.com. Email me at tylervella at gmail.com or follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash tyler.vella. I look forward to seeing you next time as we continue our review of Disproving Christianity and Other Secular Writings here on the Freed Thinker Podcast. Good night, everybody.